Take a network break. We've returned from our long winter nap, ready to tackle whatever 2022 has in store. Thanks for joining us on our dash through this week's IT news. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. You can find out what's next in SASE. Sign up and watch Palo Alto Networks SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar where they're here. Leading voices in networking and security and get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. It's all at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. And after the news, we've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba, where we're talking about the need for policy-based rather than topology-based networking in our new hybrid world. And if you like Network Break, check out Heavy Strategy. That's a newish podcast where Greg Farrow and Jonah Till Johnston from an Emerges Research go head to head on tech and industry strategy. You can find it at packetpushers.net. Greg, how are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, I had a break. I walked away from the computer, stepped away from the computer. That's it. So put your arms in the air. Uh, sort of thing, and uh, tried to stay as far away as possible, except for a couple of periods where I had to jump in to do some site maintenance and some stuff like that. Yep. And uh, I actually feel refreshed. Honestly, though, could use a couple of more weeks just like of indolence <laughs> and like pretending that the world doesn't need me for anything. How about you? <laughs> a couple more weeks would be nice. I mean, we did take two weeks off, which was great, but you sort of ease into mm. that rhythm. And then when you have to come back, you're like, wait, but I, I was enjoying that sitting on the couch yeah. and reading. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I love my job. I love what we do here at Packer Pushes, but uh, on a, it is very difficult to create content endlessly, week after week after week. I've got to say that in some places it was just easier to do stuff for a living, like configure stuff and, you know, deliver projects and stuff. And this is, you know, it's not, it's different, but it's hard in its own way, I guess. So yeah. that's why I think it. Well, that's our problem, not yours. So we'll leave that behind and, and dive right yeah, into yeah, the news. Yeah, like whining about a fantastic life is really nobody <laughs> likes that. Uh, Heavy Strategy is a podcast where uh, Jonah and I, Jonah is an analyst, has been an analyst in the industry for 20 to 30 years. And what we do is take topics and the answer on the, on the principle that the question is more interesting than the answer. So what we're trying to do is discuss things and then let you make up your own mind about how you feel about it. And maybe listening to us in our discussion and throwing ideas backwards and forwards and arguing, debating, you know, going head to head or then finding some points of agreement is maybe valuable to you. That's the idea. So here at Packet Pushes, we don't try and tell you what to think. What we try to do is give you ideas that may be relevant to your situation that you can take advantage of. And on that note, let's dive into the news. We'll start off with Oracle. They have acquired a company called Federos. Federos makes network assurance software for service providers and large enterprises. The terms of the acquisition were disclosed. Uh, Federos has a cloud platform. They offer things like fault performance and service management, universal network topology, and analytics. Yeah, we've seen Oracle buying up uh, a lot of companies in the service provider space. They buy up a company that does all of the billing for telcos and service providers. So they actually have the uh, a whole vertical platform around taking in the records for your systems and then sending you your mobile phone bill, for example. They have obviously all of the Oracle business analysis and stuff like that for those sorts of systems. But one of the things that they've done um, over the last two or three years is obviously go out and buy SD-WAN companies. We saw yep. them buy SD-WAN. We've seen them buy security companies like multi-billions of dollars worth of investment in enterprise IT and the infrastructure part. But this is actually service provider operations. So Federos is a operations platform. They provide software, full suite of tools that companies that that service providers can use to build a unified platform out of their network. It's got end-to-end -end service management, and it's also got network tool consolidation. That, of course, now puts um, Oracle above traditional networking companies. So companies like Juniper and Cisco have unified platform software or end-to-end -end service management software. And they're saying, oh, and if you buy this, for, you know, if you go to our software-defined uh -uh, 
then we'll be simplifying your network tools. This one goes above that. Looks more like a, a NUDA, you know, a NUDA network. Right. That's what I was thinking when I saw this. It mm. seemed like kind of like an NUDA, although I don't think it has the automation capabilities of a NUDA, but it is that no. sort of closed loop uh, monitoring system. Yeah. Well, a NUDA doesn't have fault management and service desk and, you know, that type of stuff. Some of that isn't in the, the NUDA is very much fi focused on uh, technical operations, but the Federos appears to be much more around service operations. Yeah. So customers ring in, report a problem. Is there an outage? You need a tool to help you diagnose that. And if you've got a multi-vendor network underneath using all sorts of weird technologies like Frame Relay and MPLS, you've got a real problem bringing that together. And you also need to have geographical vis visualization. And, and then, of course, you want to be snapping in machine learning. So they've got some of that. So they seem to have a whole bunch of stuff in there. But this is a $30 billion purchase, right? So this is not a little bit of money. Uh, and so you, this is an Oracle sees... Uh, sees itself as not so much selling infrastructure anymore. To my mind, it sees itself as a provider of solutions, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, Oracle isn't the first place I would think to go if I was a service provider looking to upgrade my NOC or get, you know, a full network visibility across my physical or my virtual systems. But these kind of software sales, these kind of platforms have a deep reach into an organization. They're hard to dislodge mm. once they're in. Uh, they're all, so I can see why Oracle would be interested in that space because once you're in, you're in. Mm. You're there for life. Yeah. It's a bit like companies that buy SAP and you right. know, those sorts of business tools. One, they take, you know, five years to implement. <laughs> you know, right. It can right. take years and years to implement and get working. And, and once they're in, you're never getting them out. So it's a bit like, you know, Salesforce for salespeople. They're in. And basically it's become the de facto tool. You know, if you're a salesperson and you don't know how to run Salesforce, you're not very valuable to a lot of companies, that sort right. of stuff. So, you know, that sort of idea is where they're headed, I think. And the value prop is that, you know, if you're a service provider or a large enterprise, you've got one tool for monitoring your routers. You've got another tool for your MPLS network. Yeah. You've got another tool for your 5G. We will sit on top of all that, pull in all the events, do the correlation, do the analytics, provide you the visibility. Mm -hmm. So it is that sort of, yeah, you've got your tools, but we've got a tool that does all of the tools. That's right. And the service providers are looking to get rid of the tools that they've built in-house. By and large, what we've seen them is they are not technology companies. They've proven to themselves to a large extent that they would rather outsource everything, including, you know, instead of taking the opportunity and when Whitebox presented itself and to make their own devices and manage their cost and take control of their destiny, it seems fairly clear at this point that they've turned away from all of that and they're just going to outsource as much as possible shed responsibility to third parties and, uh, you know, move forward that way and pretend they're like 20-year-old business model. You know, it's like going back to the to the early, early noughts where everybody was outsourcing everything until they learned what was wrong with that. Right. <laughs> well, I guess this isn't quite outsourcing because you'll run the software yourself and have it in-house, but I see what you mean that it does seem mm. like a little bit of a turn away from the promise of DIY, white box, customize and operate yourself as opposed to buying yeah. a third-party platform. Yeah, well, there was a while there where AT&T and Verizon were saying, well, we're going to hire developers and we're going to do this yes. ourselves and take That's control right. of our destiny. Yep. Um, and this feels like, you know, uh, that they haven't done that. And the rise of products by vendors who've, you know, and presumably they've been able to do it better in terms of price and features and functionality and there's, you know, that type of thing. And now Oracle's saying, well, we want to own the service provider operations market and spent big, very, very large, in fact.
All right, links in the show notes if you want more, we'll move on. Cisco, they've announced that its Service Mesh Manager, or SMM, is now available as an add-on to Cisco's Intersight Kubernetes service. Service Mesh Manager lets you set up and operate a service mesh. It's based on Istio and Envoy, so you get functions like routing, load balancing, security controls, and visibility in a Kubernetes cluster. Uh, Intersight with Service Mesh works in public cloud and on-prem. Yeah, so I raise this because Cisco's Intersight is sort of run under the radar to some extent. It's been a very... A slow paced and deliberate rollout from Cisco to try and get into cloud networking and to bridge the gap between on-prem and off-prem. And the reason I call this one is it, it's a fairly typical product in the Cisco range. They announce it early, like before their product is actually finished. Uh, they try and sell it to customers and then sort of a year or two later, it finally reaches uh, the, the market. And, and now in this case, this product has reached the market. It's not particularly innovative or exciting. It's basically an orchestration tool for an Istio service mesh. The features, as far as I can tell, are kind of about where most of their competitors were three or four years ago. It's not, you know, it's basically a visual console on an Istio service mesh, um, which is fine as far as it goes. It does Kubernetes. It does what everybody else has done. And in this case, what they're doing is folding it into Cisco's Intersight, which is a SaaS product in the cloud that Cisco's hoping most customers will migrate. Cisco's telling shareholders that it wants to be a cloud company, and it's going to do that by migrating all of the on-prem stuff into cloud-hosted services. And so Cisco's Service Mesh Manager is now available on that platform um, with you know modest features, and it's a package that if you are a Cisco customer, I'm sure you'll be pleased to have it. Yeah, I read Intersight as a competitor to VMware's Tanzu platform. Uh, they're both mm -hmm. trying to help enterprises um, build and operate container-based applications with familiar control sets where you can do separation of duty so your network folks can, you know, set up a framework for the networking side, the service mesh side, and let you, then let your developers kind of operate in a walled playground while you still get uh, the underlying open source mm -hmm. things like Istio and Envoy. Yeah, pretty straightforward. You know, if you've got Kubernetes and you're using a service mesh, Istio is very popular. Uh, was one of the early movers to the market. You could have debates on whether Istio versus the other service meshes are bigger or better. And this is just an orchestration tool that gives you the visibility and the monitoring and the analytics that you want on top of that because Istio doesn't solve those problems. I mean, I think it's smart of Cisco to leverage Istio and Envoy while wrapping it up in a more consumable package because they get the benefits mm. of all the development that's going on from Istio and Envoy without having to do that work mm. themselves. They also get to leverage the momentum those two uh, uh, projects have. Um, and also, but then also maybe, you know, get their customers onto their Intersight platform as a way to sort of yeah. keep their arms around, um, potentially folks escaping into some other container-based uh, environment. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's simple enough to write a management, you know, Cisco's already got a graphical console and yeah. teams of developers, you know, and so all we could do is read the Istio APIs and then present a GUI for it. Not a huge step for a company that's already got a lot of infrastructure in this space to say, well, we'll just add this to our existing portfolio. Quite why it has to be a separate product and build separately is a bit, you know, it feels a bit nickel and dime, but, you know, that's how, that's how the world works these days. Yeah. As usual, links in the show notes will move on. Uh, last June, Norton LifeLock, they make the Norton 360 antivirus software for home PCs. They announced that a cryptocurrency miner option would be included in the AV software. The company is now back in the news because many users have complained about how difficult it is to disable or uninstall the miner. Yeah, you don't really expect to install a, a, uni, a, a product like Norton Antivirus and then suddenly find that it's mining crypto. <laughs> when did uh, I start I mining real... Ethereum? <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I understand... The various things, and I know that crypto is is very de jour. You know, like I can't help but feel that this is kind of like a, a boost your share price to get my quarterly 
bonus thing going on because anytime you speak about crypto right now, you can often get a good spike in your share price because investors think that's pretty cool. And that kind of feels like that, like the company LifeLock, uh, which acquired Norton Antivirus some time ago, um, would be, you know, certainly like to have its share price bid up. And that's kind of fancy. This is, this is what it feels like. There's lots of – somebody, for example, at the moment is buying the uh, Blockbuster. You remember the company Blockbuster that used to rent videos? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're basically buying it to build a meme stock so that they can do some crypto. <laughs> and the company's currently valued at several billion dollars, even though it doesn't even have a business plan, it has no product, but it's got crypto. So, you know, uh, so it does feel a bit, you know, a bit like shallow and a bit hollow. Um, and I think the challenge here is that for people who really don't understand crypto mining, what they don't understand is that computers are not free to run. And they use huge amounts of electricity. And using even modern computers, it's not very efficient to just run them at home. And the temptation, I think, for people will be to turn this on and then find that their electricity bill is vastly outsized and uh, not actually make any money. Now, keep in mind here that Norton takes 15% of a skim off the top because it has to go through a back end. They send it off to an exchange and the exchange gives Norton a kickback here. So there's money in it for Norton and no work other than some software adding a crypto miner to the thing. Uh, so I, I do feel this is pretty bad overall. They do say it's opt-in. But, you know, if you put an option in front of a lot of people here with all the hype around crypto at the moment and say tick here to start crypto mining, I think people are going to be uh, find themselves in a bad situation with electricity consumption. Right, or a degradation of their PC performance because this crypto miner is working overtime. And I can't imagine how much success you're going to have with a cryptocurrency on a single PC getting anything out of it uh, for yourself. So, yeah, I do feel like this is a little bit hmm. uh, unsavory to me. Uh, I think Norton's taking advantage or LifeLock is taking advantage of, uh, you know, all the talk about crypto and maybe exploiting mm. the ignorance of its customer base potentially. Um, there's also been some complaints that yes, you do have to opt in to launch this, but it's one of those things where you're clicking through a bunch of screens to get a product going and you're maybe not reading as carefully as you are. And then suddenly mm. this crypto miner is running in the background and you're like, why is my computer slow now? Yeah. Well, it also has to be said, um, you know, that there's a political unrest in Kazakhstan at the moment. You may or may not know. Right. Uh, and it turns out that a substantial part of the political unrest is due to the uh, that Kazakhstan has been a key Bitcoin mining operation or crypto mining country. And 8% of the country's electricity has actually been diverted into crypto mining, which has been used unscrupulously. Apparently, there has been uh, suggestions that deals on electricity that amount to corruption mm. have been giving cheap or discounted electricity to Bitcoin, you know, to crypto mm-hmm. mining operations. Mm-hmm. And the price of electricity, of course, has shot up through the roof. And now part of the political unrest is that people can't afford to buy power um, to to keep themselves, you know, operational, to warm their houses, <laughs> to, to light and warm their houses, yeah. as opposed to mine uh, Bitcoin. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, you sort of, if you want to balance, you know, political an uprising where the government is actually out on the streets killing its citizens who are rising up in protest because of the price of electricity, which has in part or in large part been driven up by uh, crypto mining. It, that that is not a not a good look. Absolutely not. Yeah, crypto, I realize there's a lot of interest and popularity around it, and it's a very interesting technology, but it's still, there feels like a lot yeah. of shady behavior around it to me, and maybe that's something I'm that, but yeah. There is that, as a technologist, there's absolutely, there's something, and this is definitely worth, you know, investigating. But at this particular point, uh, whenever you put the money before the horse, um, <laughs> scammers and all sorts of people come in, it's not working at the moment. So we'll have to wait and see how this works out. Yeah. 
Right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Uh, last year, they launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE, SASE Converge 2021. You can see it as an on-demand version of the event. You'll hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO, Nir Zook, Gartner's vice president and distinguished analyst, Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN, Martin Casado. Um, you also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action. You get details on the impact of SASE technologies for organizations and learn about new innovations. Go to sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register. It's sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. If you're interested and curious about SASE, head on over, take a look, see what you think. Back to the news, uh, sticking with acquisitions, Google Cloud has acquired a company called Cmplify, a security operations startup that aims to help security teams track and respond to security events more quickly. The amount of the acquisition was undisclosed, but Cmplify had raised $58 million in venture funding since its founding in 2015. Yeah, this doesn't, this feels fine. Like Google needs security operations and it needs a ability to be able to um, show, help its clients do security orchestration, automation, and response. So the idea is that this is a tool that will actually help you respond to cyber attacks, to unify your security strategy, and all those types of things, right? Right. And Google Chronicle is already a tool that it provides to enterprises, uh, having previously acquired a company called um, Chronicle, uh -huh. um, to be able to do security on top of the Google Cloud platform. So acquiring something to boost this makes sense. But also Google and AWS and Azure talk a lot about how great they are at building products. And so when they buy them, I'm always sitting there and questioning to myself, like, really? So you're not that good at doing it. <laughs> well, sometimes <laughs> it's faster to buy than build it yourself. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in this case, it's sort of Google knows that it's not good at reaching the enterprise or designing products for the enterprise. They're so self-referential and insular that you know, I think the general consensus is that Google Cloud does not do a good job of making stuff that people can use. And buying outside like this might make sense. Somebody who can design a dashboard with the enterprise in mind. Right, right. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's a nice way for them to maybe get some enterprise business and maybe lure some folks into Google Cloud because I assume they'll continue to offer Simplify as a service that you can buy outside of Google Cloud as in addition to expanding mm. the security capabilities internally of Google Cloud. So it, it is, I think, but, an opportunity for them to maybe hook into a few more enterprise customers. But equally, nobody's just Google or just AWS or just Azure. People are multi-cloud, right? Yep. Uh, and and the, the surveys show that while very few companies have done anything in the cloud, less than 10% of IoT spending is being diverted away into off uh, into cloud generally, that is on-prem cloud and off-prem cloud, and a fraction of that is diverted into off-prem cloud. But even when people move to off-prem cloud, they're usually using multiple clouds, a mix of Azure and Google or Azure and AWS, AWS and whoever, right? And I'm not sure that you'd want to be buying an SOAR from Google uh, unless you're you know, all in on Google, and that doesn't necessarily make sense or ring true. Well, it depends on how Google handles this product. Do they keep it available as a standalone mm. service you can get, or do they make you somehow tie into Google Cloud? I think my assumption would be that they'll use it as an on-ramp where you can get it as a standalone SOAR, uh, but also be like down the line, hey, by the way, since you're using this product, would you be interested in, in some public cloud services from Google to go with that? Yeah, yep. yeah, I can go yeah. with that. Just just feels like, you know, oh, hi, I've got all my cloud on AWS, you know, or on Azure, but I'm going to go and buy my SOAR from Google Cloud. Uh, <laughs> okay, so yeah. maybe. Maybe, but yeah. I mean, like you said, everybody's multi-cloud, so 
you know, and as number three uh, in the public cloud in the U.S. market, Google can, I think, take some chances and, and try things differently. Uh, because yeah, but I, I wonder what the differentiator here is. Why would customers turn to Google Cloud Chronicle, even with Simplify, to run their SOAR when most of their services might be hosted, say, on Azure? That's a that's the value prop I don't quite get. Right, of course, yes. Why and wouldn't you just issue. buy the Azure one? Right. Well, because you still have your enterprise, so maybe that's yeah. what they're thinking. Maybe. All right, moving on. Uh, ASML, they're a Dutch company that makes lithography equipment that's essential for semiconductor manufacturing. They announced in early January a fire had broken out at a plant in Berlin. The company says no one was injured, and as of recording time, the company hasn't said whether the fire will affect plant output. This is an issue because ASML, if you haven't heard of them, they essentially have 84% of the lithography market share, and they are essential to semiconductor manufacturing. Yeah, this is critical. Uh, the actual part of the AASML, the company, they acquired a plant uh, of a Berlin manufacturing site just recently, and then the fire caught just before Christmas. Um, the acquisition of the company was to speed up their supply chain uh, <laughs> uh, and for some critical pieces of equipment. And so they actually acquired the company that supplied them with components. Um, and obviously, ASML having a failure does impact the whole silicon supply chain because they are the key and dominant, as you said, 84% market share um, of extreme ultraviolet lithography. And that literally means shining ultraviolet beams onto the silicon wafers so that you can get nanometer scale right. um, cuts into the silicon so that when you run it through a wash bath again, yeah, that's how you remove the deposition, right? You actually have to shut. And these things aren't actually shining the light on. They're actually shining the interference between two ultraviolet beams. So if you want to make equipment at five nanometers, four nanometers, two nanometers, this is the gear. I mean, it takes six months to tune them to get them accurate enough, for example. Um, and so if this has causes um, supply problems, then the next generation of silicon will maybe delayed extremely concerning, so we'll continue to keep an eye on it. But ASML is saying almost nothing. Did you read the press releases? There's like, yes, there was a fire. It's not a problem. <laughs> it's one of the shortest <laughs> press releases I've ever read. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I read some other reporting that said, I, I think it was like out of a 3,200 square meter plant, only 200 meters were affected by the fire. So it does sound like it was a small fire, but ASML is so integral to the semiconductor mm. supply chain that even a small hiccup there could have ramifications down the line. So we'll see if we learn yeah, more about this. That's sort of like saying, no, only the fire only happened in the engine of my car, but everything else is fine. <laughs> I don't know. It could be that, you know, that's just a part of the building and it's fine. But it could also be like, yeah, the fire was only in the engine. Nothing else was damaged. Right. Depending on what 200 car. square meters it was, it could be a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like I look at that and go like, what are we not saying here? You know, right. so, yes. we'll keep an eye on it and get back to you. Uh, some product news. Ingenious, they make uh, Wi-Fi products. They've announced a new Wi-Fi 6E AP targeting the SMB market. As you know, Wi-Fi 6E takes advantage of spectrum that was made available in the US. So you get even more channels available besides the traditional 2.4 and 5 gigahertz bands. This new Ingenious AP, expected to ship in the first quarter of 2022, has three radios, a 5 gigabit per second Ethernet port, and a quad-core processor. And it's the first 6E AP from Ingenious. We don't cover SMB products much, do we? Not often. No, and I hadn't heard of Ingenious, and so I had to go and do a bit of a poke at it to find out what it is that they do. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, it looks like a fairly typical white box type Wi-Fi. If there's one area of the market where white box did get traction, it's in Wi-Fi, you know. 
because they all use the same pieces of white box. And what's I think the thing that stands out to me here is that they're actually using and calling it out in the press release, the Qualcomm Networking Pro 1210 platform. Yes. Uh, now, that's unusual because Wi-Fi chipsets have been dominated by Broadcom silicon, and most Wi-Fi makers, barring a few, Cisco, for example, has its own Wi-Fi chipset and so forth, just use Broadcom silicon and a standard reference um, architecture from Broadcom, and then it's all about the software that you put on top, right? Mm-hmm. Most Wi-Fi equipment is undifferentiated except for the antennas and the quality of the deployment, which is you know, an unusual step in this market. And so for this company to be using Qualcomm sort of suggests that there's some diversity happening, that Broadcom's diverting its manufacturing capacity to its preferred customers, perhaps, or doing, and this company's basically decided, well, we'll go and get Qualcomm and rewrite our software and work for that. And that's the only thing that stands out for me. Is there anything I'm missing? No, I don't think so. And it, it did stick out to me too, that they announced that it was the Qualcomm chipset. Cause I'm assuming that most of their SMB customer base doesn't really care what the guts are. They just want yeah. uh, an AP that works. So it did stick out to me as uh, a curiosity. And I don't, maybe there was some kind of deal where they mentioned that the Qualcomm thing, maybe it's also a way to get Broadcom's attention. Not sure, but yes, it is. It is something that jumped mm. out. Bit, bit, bit weird to call out the fact that you've got a Qualcomm chipset in the back of your SMB Wi-Fi. That's yes. like... Really? You know, if you, does your home Wi-Fi have an arm inside? Do you know? Do you, do do you care? care? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I mean, maybe our listeners do, but probably most don't. So, yes, no. it, it was strange. Uh, it's an interesting know, product portfolio, though, having looked at it. I thought it was really interting. Yeah, if you haven't heard of Engine, check them out if you're looking for, you know, some uh, – price competitive offerings. Uh, just to make a note, other Wyland vendors have also announced 6E APs. That includes Aruba Extreme Networks and Juniper Networks in their MIS portfolio. So there's lots of 6Es coming out if you're on the market. If they can ship them. <laughs> right. Rumors suggest that they're going to be hard to get. Yes. And that doesn't even take into account laptops and desktops and devices that might be able to use 6E. Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't be rushing into 6E, I think. Plenty of time for that to bake. You know? Absolutely, <laughs> especially if you're not rushing back to the office, uh, then and then you've already mm-hmm. upgraded to the previous six. Then you, you give it some time. You're okay. All right, let's wrap up with a little bit of space networking. A Starlink, they're the service that delivers internet broadband via satellites, now has 145,000 users across 25 companies, according to the company. However, user growth has dropped by more than half recently. The company added 5,000 new users in December when it had been adding about 11,000 per month since the service launched. That's according to a story on CNBC. Yeah, well, space news is is always a favorite here at the network break. And Starlink, which has been building out a satellite networking service, has been a bit of a fun thing because I think it sees it as a real disruptive force in various parts of the market. Obviously, disrupts things like rural broadband. Mm-hmm. It brings internet to remote locations that don't have any other way. Like no one's going to lay a cable or run microwave links out to their location. And this makes sense. And also Starlink needs has been a first mover and it must move faster than everybody else or go broke. Elon Musk has said several times Starlink is at the financial limits. It's spending so much money. At some point, it actually has to start making money to justify SpaceX. And without Starlink firing and making cash, SpaceX as a business is definitely under threat at some level. And he's stated that a few times. And so for Starlink to now say, we're slowing down growth because we can't get chips. So we have no problems with throwing rockets up into orbit. And, you know, reusable rockets and massive advances in rocketry, but we can't actually build the satellite dishes because there's no chips available. That's a bit of a sad story. That is ironic that they're not having any problem boosting payloads into space 
uh, leaving yeah. the planet, but they can't get chips. That is, that yeah. is unusual. Yeah, they they launched another forty nine satellites this week in a in a Falcon Nine launch. Um, it was a rather unique launch in the sense that they didn't even need to use the water bath at the bottom. They must have been running very low boost. They must have had a, a window to get them into space at exactly the right uh, trajectory. So it was interesting. But um, yeah, SpaceX is um, dependent on Starlink for a large part of its forward funding. And if Starlink doesn't fire, uh, Elon Musk's ambitions around Mars may be under threat. Right. It is interesting that Elon Musk, to build a space business, also had to build an internet broadband business. And having the two of them so tightly coupled and so precariously financed, uh, it will make for some, I guess, interesting times over the next <laughs> year or so as he tries to stabilize both. Well, people believe in Ma Elon Musk. Um, he is, it's hard uh, to bet against him because he's generally, you know. <laughs> for all of his bluster and strangeness, you know, he has delivered. There are satellites in space. Absolutely. You can get internet broadband. So, you know. It's, but you've got to watch out for where the stumbling blocks are and be aware of them. That's Absolutely. All. I wouldn't Absolutely. bet against Elon Musk. And, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, think he can, he can achieve miracles. But I think so far he's just been very, very lucky. He's managed to time certain things. But you've also got to respect somebody who built PayPal and then went on to build Tesla and then Space SpaceX. So. I mean, it's sort of what drives me crazy, going back to a point you reference, is that uh, – for some reason, we haven't been able to pull fiber to rural areas, so we've had to launch spaceships. Uh, that just mm. doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, but here we are. Mm. Maybe it's a transition. Maybe it's a transition point. Maybe. All right. Well, that ends the news portion of our show. Stick around for our sponsor, TechBytes conversation with Aruba Networks on the need for policy-driven networking in a world of hybrid and distributed work. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Byte podcast, we discuss redefining networks and policy in today's hybrid world. That is a network that needs to be available anywhere, anytime, anyhow, in any way. Aruba is our sponsor, and we're joined by James Robertson. He is CTO advisor and technology strategist in the office of the CTO at Aruba. James, welcome to the podcast. And so what does hybrid mean from your perspective and, and how should the C-suite in particular be thinking about it? Yeah, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure being with you today. I think you have to start by, let's kind of do a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, you go back a couple of years and we thought about hybrid in terms of networking, in terms of, you know, how am I going to handle my cloud versus my on-prem uh, and any kind of needs in between. And, you know, through the pandemic, we've seen some kind of tectonic shifts occurring, obviously, in order to support the needs of businesses. So today, hybrid to me really means how do we handle the issues of being able to, to work anywhere um, you know, whether it be in the office, whether it be uh, at the home, whether it be between the office, in a way that gives you the most kind of robust environment possible. So you know that you're getting the experience that you need, regardless of where you are and uh, and how you're connecting. I think part of the issue is that we sort of looked at when the pandemic kicked off that we're going through this period of disruption and then things will settle back to normal, which was the way it always was where folks came into an office. And that doesn't seem like it's going to be the case even post-pandemic when it's safe to go back. There's going to be a mix. Yeah, I, I totally uh, agree. I think we're now starting to see that play out um, as we go through the, you know, the different variants and stages of this that, you know, the, the, 
what we thought would be just a mass return to the office um, is going to be staged accordingly and may never completely uh, 100% recover, right? We're seeing uh, organizations look at uh, their floor plans and determine what they really need in terms of, you know, captured office space versus uh, utilizing, mm. you know, the work from home environments that we've, uh, that we all kind of come to love over the last couple of years. So, so getting that balance right really, um, I think is critical now. And, you know, when you think about uh, where we started this journey, it was very much knee jerk, right? Because uh, all of a sudden uh, everyone was forced to to go to their homes. And so IT organizations were, uh, you know, looking at uh, what they had in their current portfolio and going, okay, how do we really enable our home workers to be productive? Mm. And, and that took a little bit of effort and time to kind of, kind of come around. So organizations have lived on those strategies for this last year or so. And what I'm seeing now as I talk to a number of C-level uh, IT executives is really a re-entrenching of those strategies to, to kind of perfect them, to get them to the point where, you know, it is truly a long-term strategy and not just something that they, they thought they would yeah. be handling for six to 12 months. I think it's actually very complex, this, in the sense that it's not like the whole market is going in one direction, right? Five years ago, we were all going down the path of IPSEC. Yep. And now all of a sudden it's, it could be SD-WAN, it could be uh, uh, an SSL VPN via a cloud provider, it could be SSL VPN to head office, and it could be SD-WAN, it could be, you know, we've got Aruba appliances that do home-based SD-WAN type technologies as well, do the Wi-Fi and then you have separate connections with some sort of SD-WAN type capabilities. And we've got, and I think that the challenge here is that even for companies that think they're either going fully remote or fully coming back to the office. That's actually not true. You can't accurately predict the future. So the real challenge I think here is that you need to have a network strategy that's actually flexible enough to change as the situation changes. Six months ago, it was, oh, we're all, COVID, it's going to be a while and then we'll all be back in the office. Oh, hang on. Now we've got Omicron. We may never be back in the office. How do you, you know, if you have a strategy, it just blew up right there, you know? Yeah, I, I think, you know, any good technology leader is always trying to understand how to make sure that the services that they're providing uh, provide underlying agility and flexibility to the business, right? Mm. And, and so, um, you know, if, if this whole pandemic has taught us nothing, it's that those two heightened senses um, have to be part of the strategy, right? We can't just think about things in terms of kind of static deployments of devices and products. It now has to be, how do I deploy the right environment so that I can make sure that whatever way the business pivots next, and it could be uh, business model pivoting, or it could be a you know uh, directional change based on what we're seeing from COVID, um, whichever way they pivot, that the infrastructure at its heart can handle that, right? And it yeah. can do it with ease. So the question is then, how do we get there? Because you're talking about needing a network that's flexible or agile, whatever adjective you want to use. But the fact is, traditionally, networks have been a little bit brittle and not necessarily designed for a, an environment that's full of unknowns. Right. And I think it really takes a different kind of thinking about networks going forward, right? That instead of looking at it in terms of, you know, defining a topology, which we've been really good at, you know, historically, if you think about, um, you know, just you know, from the beginnings of networking, the modern era of networking, 
we've looked at building topologies and then we built better mousetraps, right? By changing those topologies to do different things. Mm -hmm. I think what it takes now um, is, is really a rethinking of that in terms of how do I drive the infrastructure from a point of view of a policy directive, right? So a point of view of me setting or the business setting the goals um, from a from a, a business intent standpoint, a policy driven approach, and then allowing the infrastructure, the underpinning infrastructure, to appropriately apply those policies, right? So you know you get that flexibility because the infrastructure is not tied down uh, in terms of you know uh, ACLs or route maps or uh, you know other kind of complexity. It's it's basically reacting to the application of our policy on that network mm. and that policy being applied to a role on that network, whether it be the user role or a device role or some other you know constituent role that is defining the actions across that network that's to me where we have to be going forward otherwise you know we're going to stay in this kind of rut of the topology constraining our ability to handle the needs of the business going forward i think the important part about policy based networking or policy operated or intent based networking is it signifies a shift by the vendor to focus, to move away from the speeds and feeds from the selling of something, the selling of a product and focus on an operational aspect. And I think that's the key transition here. And I wonder what you think about this is we're, we're now as much focused on the product, you know, Wi-Fi 6E and, you know, how many hundred gig ports we can get into a switch and, and you know, the, the Mac tables, but we're equally right. focused now for the first time really in 30 years of networking on the operational hat. Like instead of using finger defined networking and hoping that it works. And then once it's working, <laughs> just don't touch it. We're now moving into an operational environment where we make configuration changes all the time. And yep. we have overlay networks and we have underlay networks and we have integrated networks. We have networks connect to other networks. So we have the Wi-Fi and the campus, and then we have security. So we have NAC on them. And then we have trusted NAC and we have dynamic NAC. And then we have, you know, there's all this stuff going on and all this operational complexity has to be administered in some way. And I think ultimately this policy-based networking or intent-based networking and software operated networking is all a reflection of that. That's just my feeling. Do you agree no, with that? Yeah, I, I, I do actually. I think, you know, the business has to define, right, what the business is trying to accomplish. And if you think historically, you know, we've looked at the topology as being the, the definition of what the business can accomplish on top of that topology. And so I think that game is changing where organizations, in, in, including our own, are more focused around business outcomes, right, than, you know, just the, the speeds and feeds alone. The speeds and feeds are still important. Don't get me wrong, right? You, you know, you've got to keep pace with the ever-changing demands on an infrastructure. But if you can't do it from a point of view of getting a business outcome to, to exist and resonate on that infrastructure, then we're, we're failing the business that we're supporting with our infrastructure. So thinking about a policy-driven environment, that to me means I need some kind of context based around who the user is, what they're trying to access, what device they're on, what location they're on, and also where my policy repository is or where the policy repositories are and how they're enforced. How do you tie all that together then? Yeah, so... You know, Aruba has always focused on the idea of, you know, very stringent kind of security controls, right? That's kind of from the beginning of, of Aruba uh, history. 
when we were looking at wireless, it really was with the idea that, you know, Wi-Fi networks should be more secure than they were back then. And that's progressed forward. So when you think about within the Aruba portfolio, we've really focused on how do we define this policy uh, and, and that goes back to uh, Aruba ClearPass, which is our you know policy engine yep. that uh, sits on top of everything and governs uh, all of these policies uh, across the edge, right? From edge to edge, or from data center to data center, or WAN across the WAN environment on an SD WAN in infrastructure. You know, basically the policy engine defines. Uh, at the heart, what the network is going to do with a particular connection. Um, and that that's really where you start. And, and, and using that policy engine, that ClearPass policy engine, uh, as the underpinning naturally gives you some advantages um, on what's going on on the infrastructure. Because if you, if you think about, you know, zero trust for a second, right? And everyone talks about zero trust, but at the heart of zero trust, we have to assume everything is going to do us harm. And, and so if we're going to assume everything's going to do us harm, the best way to think about turning that the other way up is to not allow things on the infrastructure unless there's a policy that controls those actions on the infrastructure. So, so that's where ClearPass really comes from. An ability for the, the network administrator uh, and in cooperation with the business to define the rules that govern how traffic flows across that network, right? How individuals operate on that network, your user-based controls, uh, how devices on that network uh, are controlled or governed, and um, then allowing them to be placed in what I call swim lanes, right? We call it dynamic segmentation inside of Aruba, but mm -hmm. basically to create virtual swim lanes uh, across the infrastructure from source to sink, from where they join the network to where they're going or leaving, mm -hmm. um, that allows that traffic to maintain that uh, policy posture all the way through, right? And that's that's really the heart of what we've got inside of the Aruba infrastructure. I can see that on premises, uh, certainly. And, uh, you know, folks are probably very familiar with ClearPass, but I'm thinking in today's hybrid environment where if I'm sitting at home as a remote user, I may never need to touch the corporate network if a lot of my day-to-day uh, -day apps are in the cloud. So where's the enforcement mechanism for all these policies you've got if I'm at home? Yeah, so you know, we think we feel that the the edge has now moved right from just being the edge of kind of the walled garden of the campus environment, mm -hmm. all the way out to potentially the home office, right, or the micro uh, office or wherever it might be. And, and so we've really focused on uh, enabling that environment and maintaining that secure posture, that policy based posture all the way out uh, with a product set that uh, we call the micro branch. Uh, and it literally is, you know, it looks like a couple of playing cards um, kind of size device uh, that can sit on a desktop or be connected, you know, on a wall box in, in a room and apply those policies all the way out, whether it be through a wired connection or a wireless connection. So uh, even if someone working permanently from home or in that model where they may be working a couple of days in a corporate office and three days at home or whatever it might be, they can move from one place to the other and IT and IT security and all of the other governance compliance uh, aspects can be maintained in regardless of which environment they're in because the policy controls have been driven all the way down even into that home office environment. 
Mm. But also, you know, as we talked, we, we sort of joked in earlier about the five A's, anywhere, anyhow, anywhen, you know, um, this also means public cloud, you know, off-premise cloud could be off-premise yep. data centers. It could be, you know, uh, flexible branches, which is not only fixed branches, but pop-up locations that happen inside right. of other people, you know, whatever. This is the transition and the operational load of that is substantial. I want to, you know, looping back around to this operational focus, how do we manage all of that day to day with the same number of headcount when everything's just got more complicated, right? Right, yeah, because, you know, we are all cloud heavy at this point, right? We use a lot of services that are cloud uh, based rather than potentially, you know, uh, on-prem data center based, right? So um, we need to be able to make sure that we can, uh, effectively and securely pivot out to use those services, right, when possible. But that, that all starts with policy again, right? If we define policy that says, yes, you can go use, you know, Office 365, right, from your home directly, rather than having to tunnel all the way back to the corporate office and hit a, f a firewall gateway um, mm. in order to go out and come back, right? That is going to create an efficiency right there at the home because we're able to, to define what traffic is going to particular services. Now, if there's other services that, um, you know, may not be certified by that business, right, those those traffic paths can be, you know, pushed through the swim lane, um, back upstream and process centrally and, you know, uh, proxy it out or whatever uh, to those providers or to those cloud services. So so you can just, get an just, advantage, right? I, just can't under, I mean, just getting into my mind, this idea of dynamic segmentation, this idea of, you know, dynamically identifying an endpoint and creating a, a segment, network segment, yet... Um, you know, 10, even five years ago, the only way we could do that was using VLANs or maybe in the campus, it was mm -hmm. MPLS, if you were very lucky. And suddenly lucky, today yeah. we've got, yeah. but now suddenly today it's like, sure, you've got an underlay network and now you've got this dynamic overlay networks that are just assigned as needed, as and when. And that whole idea is just sometimes still boggles me how far we've come in five years. Now, not everybody's got that deployed yet, but they, right. they should be thinking about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, like we said earlier, right, this is really where um, we've got to undo the handcuffs of the of the topology, right? That, that VLAN, right, or that MPLS tag, right, mm. forcing traffic to go a particular way versus the policies that define what happens to that traffic on its journey, right? And, and you know, when you start to define policy really close to the user, like, like we're talking about, um, you know, you don't get that issue of, you know, no, kind of north-south traffic problems, right? Where you're inspecting traffic when you hit a particular, you know, ch uh, checkpoint, right? Like, um, you know, literally like a passport control. Where you go, oh yeah, that traffic's allowed to pass through you know, it's already done its damage potentially then because it's moved through the network to that point. Whereas yeah. if we're able to, you know, segment, micro segment this traffic, right, into these dynamic segments right there at its point of origin and push it through to its point of destination and do whatever we need to do with it on that journey, right, we're intrinsically securing that traffic flow from end to end, from edge to edge, right? Um, and so we, we, we are naturally building a security posture that allows us then to look at the abnormal aspects, right? Things that are out of compliance with the policies that we're defining, right? Where, where are traffic flows? Where are interesting aspects occurring in the telemetry of the network that we can quickly bubble up and make a decision on? 
right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's we really kind of that next frontier as we start to look at driving uh, networks through kind of the deep insights of, of, uh, of a data lake of telemetry versus, you know, historically where it's been, you know, red light bad, green light good, right? Mm. And yellow light, hey, I probably need to take a look at that because something's going wonky over there. Well, James, we've run out of time. There's probably a lot more to talk about, but this uh, does bring us to the end of this episode. If folks want to continue the conversation or find out more, where should they go? Uh, just visit arubanetworks.com. That'd be great. Thank you. All right, that's arubanetworks.com. Thank you, James, for joining us, and thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free, technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.